the Gospel of John in the seventh chapter. I was coming back, let's see what it was, Thursday night. I finished Thursday night. Orlando, I was coming back, driving through the night, as sometimes I do. It was getting about one or two o'clock, and I was getting a little tired, and I was on my phone trying to find something to listen to to wake me up. And so I went to YouTube, and I found a playlist of Southern gospel music. So I I'll play this, and you all know, listen to music. And I, I, to be honest with you, I, could, I wasn't sure if it was Southern gospel or rock and roll. Because it pretty much sounded the same. It'd wake you up. It'd wake you up, that's for sure, if you're full of the devil. But uh, I thought, my soul, this is, this is horrible. I, I, I don't like heathen or hypocrites singing to me. Y'all relax a little bit, all right? I like when people sing and they love the Lord and, and live in it. And, and, uh, and godliness and giftedness. That's a great thing, isn't it? I appreciate the music in our church. John chapter 7, and I'm going to read just three verses for our text this morning. We're in the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. And this morning we come to verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then in parentheses, John later adds this explanation. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. We come back this morning to this scene which places us in Jerusalem at the annual Feast of Tabernacles. We've established over the last couple of weeks that this is one of the three annual feasts that filled Jerusalem with Jews from all over the world. It took place in the fall of the year at the end of the harvest, and it was meant to be a week-long festival, celebration, jubilation, that celebrated the past provisions of God on their nation and looked forward to millennial blessings of God upon the nation. There would be ceremonies at the temple. There would be religious services. There would be feastings. There would be festivals. There would be memorials. It was certainly the most jubilant of all of the feasts that Israel celebrated annually. Though we are only in John chapter 7, it is the last year of the Lord's ministry. We are only... Six months away from the crucifixion, and all of Jerusalem is abuzz with anticipation and speculation about Jesus. First of all, is he even there? He is expected, anticipated to be in the city, but is he even in Jerusalem? The religious leaders, they expected him to make an appearance, and it is well known that they are still hating him from the incident of John 5, and they're not about to let him come in and create another scene like the last time. There is different opinions among the common people. He is a good man doing good. No, he is a deceiver and he is full of the devil. He is a charlatan. There are different opinions. And so halfway through the feast, in the middle of the week, the Bible tells us that Jesus comes into the city. He makes his way to the temple. He begins to teach to 
whatever crowd assembles around him. And though he comes in quietly, he does not intentionally provoke the ire of the people or the temple police, he very soon becomes too large of a presence to ignore. And last week or the week before, we looked at some of the responses that are found here that the people have toward Christ. I'll just review them for you quickly. You'll notice in verse number 11 that some people argued about him. Look at verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? There was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He's a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. So, so the two prevailing views is, number one, he's good. Number two, he is dishonest. That's about as different as two views can be. But I would tell you that both views will send you to hell if that is your final verdict. If all that he is is a good man, then he is also a deceiver because he claimed to be much more than just a good man. If he is only good and he's not God, then he's not even good. If you ask the man on the street, what is your opinion of Christ? He's going to come up basically with these two things. He's either good or he's not good, and it doesn't matter. Either one of them is going to send you to hell if that's all that you come up with. Some argued about him, and then some were astonished at him. Verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? The rabbis were well-educated men. They, um, they, they, they were doctors of the law, and they prided themselves in their education and the letters that came after their name and the rabbis that they sat under. It's kind of be like a preacher today that, that has an honorary doctor degree bestowed on him by some school and he advertises himself as a doctor. Doctor. I actually have one of those myself. It's hanging on my office if you want to go look at it. It's hanging on one side. And the only reason it's hanging up because I have my bachelor's degree on one and I needed something to balance it out, so I hung that up there as well. But I'm no more a doctor than anybody. And Jesus didn't have all of these credentials. He didn't study in the prominent schools of the rabbis. He wasn't educated in their schools. So they said, how does he speak with such authority and truth and power? He doesn't have letters like the other rabbis have. The rabbis, by the way, were fond of quoting other rabbis who quoted other rabbis that gave you some, some, some authority, that gave you some, some, some gravitas, that gave you some legitimacy that, I, that you could quote rabbi so-and-so. And in verse 16, Jesus came and he said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. He's not quoting out of a sermon outline book. He said, I got my doctrine straight from God. I, I'm quoting the fathers who I'm quoting. So some argued about it. And then some were angry with him. You find that in verse 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and you all marvel. That's referring to Matthew or John 5. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I've made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day. How irrational anger can make a man. They're angry at him because he did a good deed 
on the Sabbath day and it violated their traditions, not the law, it violated their traditions. But on the other hand, they would suspend Sabbath laws in order to circumcise a child if it took place on the eighth day. If the Sabbath was on the eighth day, then okay, circumcision supersedes Sabbath and they would suspend that. And Jesus said, I just suspended your traditions to heal a man that's been waiting for a miracle for 38 years and you're mad at me? How irrational anger can be. Their rage fills them with hatred for the Savior. And they can't even see their own hypocrisy in the whole matter. So some were angry and then some were ambivalent toward him. Look at verse 25. Then says some of them of Jerusalem is not this he whom they seek to kill. But lo, he speaketh boldly and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know when this man, we know when this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now these are probably the common people and, and there's a little bit of perplexity. The temple priests, the, the Pharisees, they, they've already stated they want him killed. Well, why don't they do something about it? Why do they let him just walk around and teach and boldly? Why, why, why aren't they doing something? And then somebody suggests, could it be that the rabbis have inside information? Maybe they believe secretly that he is the Messiah. And then immediately they said, well, no, it can't be. Because we know where he comes from. And we believe that the Messiah is going to make a grand entrance. He's going to make a supernatural appearance. He's not coming from Galilee. So there's undecisiveness, there is confusion, there is ambivalence about him. And then some are antagonistic against him, verse 30. Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. The Pharisees looking for an opportunity to arrest him, but the opportunity never came. And what I want you to see this morning is that there are so many opinions He's a good man. No, he's not a good man. He's a deceiver. He could be a devil. He's the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah because he doesn't come to the right place. Some citizens want to leave him alone. Others say, why don't the temple police arrest him? And why don't they do something about him? Why don't they arrest him and relieve the tension? But maybe if they do, maybe he's going to create a revolt and create all kinds of problems. So there's all kinds of opinions about that. But here's what I want you to do for just a minute. I want you to try to place yourself in that scene. And I want you to imagine that you're the Christ. Imagine for just a moment that you are him. Very few, if any, are willingly to open, openly confess that he's the son of God. The mood of all the people are all of these opinions and none of them are correct. And of course, Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. He knows even the ones that are sympathetic to him right now in six months will be clamoring for his crucifixion. He is teaching, but he's careful because it's not his appointed time yet. And his heart yearns for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often when I've gathered thee, he yearns for Jerusalem and his brethren. They don't believe him. They don't confess him. There's more rejection than there is acceptance. There's more unbelief than there is faith. There is more animosity than there is sympathy. So what would you do? What would you say? For the greater part of two years, he's done nothing but good. 
He's presented hundreds of signs pointing to himself and they still don't believe we are six months away from the crucifixion and the, and the whole city is in an uproar. Everybody has an opinion and none of them are right. So what you going to say? How do you think that right now would be a good time for a real red hot fiery sermon? I mean a John the Baptist type sermon. I mean if ever there was a time for hellfire and brimstone, right now is time for hellfire and brimstone. And by the way, Jesus was a fiery preacher. I hate to tell you, he wasn't a Joel Osteen type. He just wasn't. You go read Matthew 23 sometime. The sermon on hypocrisy. I mean, he called them names. He pointed them out. I mean, he could be a fiery preacher. He could deliver righteous indignation. So I would not be surprised if he was to stand in the temple square with all of these unbelievers and I mean just unload both barrels right down their throat. I, just, 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 just give it to them. And that's what makes this text so supreme. He stands to those unbelievers and he offers an invitation. The text that I've read to you is one of the greatest invitations in all the Bible. It is an invitation to salvation. There are other invitations, but there is none that is so dramatic and so forceful as this invitation. And I imagine that Jesus invited people to come all of the time. Maybe every day he was inviting people to come, but he stands in that temple courtyard with teeming thousands and thousands of people around and he interrupts the ceremony. We'll talk about it in a minute. And he cries with the loudest voice that he can, if any man thirst, come unto me. Not to his friends, not to his disciples, not to all of those who have sworn allegiance to him. No, to those he said he's a good man, to those who said he's a deceiver, to those who said he's full of the devil, to those he said he's a liar, to those who said, I don't wonder why they don't arrest him and have him put to death, to the Pharisees that want to kill him, to those people, he offers this invitation. Does that not speak to you of the gracious character of Christ? And can I tell you, can I tell you that there is a time for condemnation, but our God delights in mercy. He is a gracious God. He is a loving God. He is a patient God. And do not be mistaken, if you spurn the invitation of God and you seal your damnation, but it does not have to be that way from a human standpoint. Jesus has every right to be angry and irritated and frustrated with these men, but he stands and he invites them, not condemnation, but an invitation. Now let me take a minute and set the scene for you, all right? And I'll give you three thoughts. If you'll notice in verse 37, it says, In the last day, that great day of the feast. Now you'll remember that this particular feast looks back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel and how God had provided for them during that time. And part of the commemoration, you find this in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have to read it another time. Part of the commemoration was for the people to go out and to build booths made out of branches and, and what have you. And they would live in those booths during that week. And it was basically a reenactment of the time that they were wandering nomads in the wilderness. 
And there were a lot of things that God did for them. And one of the things that God did for them during that time was he miraculously provided them water from a rock. And one of the things they would do is they would commemorate a ritual that involved water. Here's what they would do. And this was not in the law. This was added as a tradition by the rabbis. But the rabbis have created a elaborate ceremony to help them to remember. Nothing wrong with it, but it became part of their tradition. Every day during this feast, thousands and thousands of Jews would come into the temple courtyard and they would bring with them branches. And they would come and they would gather around the brazen altar. There's thousands of them. And they would cover the altar with those branches. Then the high priest would lead a procession of priests and Levites. They would go to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. They'd go to the pool of Siloam and he would take a pitcher of water. Then he would come back, leading that procession back through the water gate, back to the altar, through all those throngs of people, and he would pour that water out upon the altar. That was their way of reenacting, remembering God giving them water in the wilderness. As he did this, the Levitical choir would begin to sing, and the people would begin to sing, and what they would sing is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. It's called the Hallelujah Psalm. They were saying it's a great, great big ceremony on the last day. The last day was very important. And it's interesting. It's interesting that in Leviticus chapter 23, it talks about it being a seventh-day feast, but then it says on the eighth day. So there is a day that is added to it. And on the last day, here comes all of these tens of thousands of Jews. And historians say that on this day, the priest goes and, and he takes that golden pitcher and he gets a, a, a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and he comes back to the altar. And this time, this time, they add a little bit to it. This time of the last day, all the people, they start marching in a circle around the altar and they march seven times around the altar. And then he pours the water out on the altar. And marching seven times around the altar is a reminder of their first victory in the Canaan land, marching around the walls of Jericho seven times. Now, get, now to get the scene in your mind, it's the most celebratory of all the feasts. It, it is jubilant. It, it is, it is I, I want to almost say Christmas, but Christmas is not jubilant to some of us. But, but it, it, is, it, is, it is jubilant. It is joyful. There are tens of of thousands of Jews that are crowded into this temple area. You got the priestly procession. You got the water ceremony. You got them waving branches. You got them singing and the Levitical choir leading them. And maybe just as the priest begins to pour that water out, maybe everybody just kind of hushes and they're watching. And it's a solemn time. And in that moment, it could be that Jesus, standing on the outskirts or on a ledge, but somewhere, Jesus takes advantage of the noise being hushed. And at the top of his voice, he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, I don't know exactly if that's exactly when it happened. We don't know. But we know that's the setting. We know that that is the context. It's on the last day. It's in that context that our Savior takes advantage of that water ceremony 
and presents himself as the water of life. Now with that context, I want to look at the text. Give you three thoughts. Three thoughts. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. First of all, I want you to notice the Savior's invitation. And I want you to notice in verse number 37 that there are three verbs. If any man thirst, there's the first one. Let him come, there's the second one, unto me and drink. There's the third one. The Savior's invitation. If any man thirst. Now I believe it's very clear that Jesus is using an analogy here just like he did in John 6 when he talked about the bread of life and eating his flesh. He's not talking about a physical thirst, but he's using the ceremony of water to paint a picture and to point to their spiritual thirst. So though he speaks of thirst and he speaks of drinking and he speaks of rivers of living water, bear in mind, bear in mind, he's using the physical to illustrate the spiritual. And thirst indicates that there is a need in the human body. You may have heard of the rule of three. The rule of three that says typically, the typical person can last for three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food. Now, that's not a hard rule, but they say generally you can last a lot longer without food than you can without water. And thirst indicates that we have a craving, that there is a need in the human body that must be given attention to. And by the way, I thought how the thirst is becoming a huge business, big business. You can go to the convenience store right now and get a 44-ounce big gulp of Mountain Dew or whatever you want put in it 44 ounces it's amazing my truck seats five people I have six cup holders in my truck I don't know who the sixth one is for but it assumes that we are all going to be thirsty at the same time you go to any sporting goods store and there is an entire section of water bottles you could spend $50 on a water bottle. Pour it out of the plastic bottle. Pour it into the metal bottle with the little handle, whatever. I'm telling you, it's big business. Last year, Americans spent $15 billion on bottled water. you imagine that? <laughs> that some company in France took out of a tap somewhere. And it, it, it. Because when there is thirst, the human body cries out for water and it must have water to survive. Thirsting is a craving. You are aware of it. And the more thirsty you are, the more acutely aware that you become that you need water. When a person is dehydrated, they say that the first organ that begins to go is the brain. The brain, that's the first organ that begins to deteriorate. People will literally go mad. They will go insane if they cannot get water to drink. And Jesus is telling us here that, that, that they have a thirsty soul, not a thirsty body, but they have a thirsty soul. 
I would ask you this morning, do you have a thirst? Do you have a longing? Do you have a craving for what Jesus offers? Do you have a thirst for satisfaction? Do you have a thirst for peace? Do you have a thirst for forgiveness of sins? Do you have a thirst for salvation? And if you are thirsty, if your soul is parched and dry, Jesus says, come to me. I'm the only one that can quench the thirsting of your soul. That's why people must realize their thirst before they come to Jesus. And they must know that no one else can quench that thirst except Jesus. In fact, I say, if your sin has not made you thirsty, then they are not going to come. But if you have a thirsty soul, you can find that Jesus is a refreshing drink of water for the thirsty soul. Isaiah 55 and verse number 1, there's the invitation. Oh, everyone that is thirsty, come ye to the waters. It's the same invitation. The Bible calls out to those who are thirsty to come to God and to drink. The world offers things that cannot satisfy the yearnings of the heart, whether it is possessions and prestige, whether it is fame or fortune. And those things do not touch the heart's desire for peace and for forgiveness. They don't offer any assurance of immortality or anything beyond the grave. I think about what Jeremiah lamented in Jeremiah 2 when he said, My people have committed two evils. And the first is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Secondly, they have hewn cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isn't that the world? Broken cisterns, broken vessels that cannot hold any waters, but that for that soul that has an overwhelming sense of his guilt and for that soul who has a craving for rest and for peace and for that soul that has a desire for forgiveness, Jesus says, come to me if any man thirsts, if any man thirsts. But then notice he says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. That's another way of saving believing because the very next verse says, he that believeth on me. So to drink it is to appropriate, it's to take in, it's to receive Christ. So here's my question. Do you have a thirst for Christ? I, I say to you that a man who is not sick of his sin and is not thirsty for what Christ offers is not going to come to Christ. You can drag him to Jesus with high-pressure sales tactics, but you can't make him believe in Christ. The saying is that you can, you can drag a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. You can drag a sinner to Jesus, but you can't make him believe. There's been so much harm done in modern day evangelism trying to get people saved that don't even realize that the law is trying to get them to drink of Jesus and they're not even thirsty in the first place. But when a sinner has an acute awareness of the thirst of his soul and you tell him that Jesus will satisfy that and he's the water that satisfies him, I tell you, you don't have to coax him. You don't have to beg him. You don't have to sing nine verses of just as I am. He's ready to take a drink of that water. You don't have to beg a thirsty man to drink water. You don't have to beg a thirsty man to trust Christ. That's why in evangelism we use the law to bring men to grace. That's why we share the bad news so we can share the good news. We have people sitting in our pews singing Amazing Grace. They've never been amazed at their sin. How can you be amazed at the grace of God? You've not been amazed at your sin. And I say to you, one of the greatest dangers in child evangelism is trying to get children who have not been awakened to their need of a Savior to say a prayer, make a little profession of faith. Tell you what you do. Just let the Holy Spirit create a thirst in their soul. Let him do his work. The Savior's invitation. 
But then I want you to notice the Spirit's operation. If you notice in verse number 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now when he says that, those people standing in the courtyard don't understand him. So many years after the fact, when John is recording this, John puts in a parenthesis, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you and I have the benefit of understanding what they didn't understand. He says in verse 39, For this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now again, it's an analogy. When you drink, it fills you up and it quenches your thirst. But Jesus says that if you will come to me, I'll give you more than just a drink of water. I'll fill you up so that the water will flow out of you. The life that I, the life that I will give you won't just stay in you. It will flow out of you. You will not be a reservoir just to hold water. You will be like a river that water flows out of. John adds this comment. He explains that Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. By the way, John says more about the Holy Spirit in his gospel than the other gospel writers. If you hold your finger right here, would you look at John 14 quickly? John 14, don't, don't lose John 7. But John 14 and verse number 16 Jesus says, I will pray the Father, he should give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Look down in verse number 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he should teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, look at chapter 15 and verse number 26. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as the forgotten person of the Godhead because most Christians do not understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That they have a vague understanding of his indwelling, but no experiential knowledge of his feeling. And it is not the same thing. They vaguely believe that he is residing inside of him, but they have no knowledge of him reigning over them. They know what it is to be indwelled, but they don't know what it is to be filled. We don't know as much about the Holy Spirit, and that's to our shame. But when Jesus says that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, John says he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, look at John 16. Are you there? Look at John 16. Look back at verse 5. Jesus is meeting with his disciples in the upper room. He's revealing to them that he's getting ready to go back to the Father. That's very disconcerting news to them. In fact, Peter even says, I'll go with you. Why do you have to go away? They, they don't understand that. And, and so for the next few chapters, Jesus seeks to comfort their hearts in the light of the fact that he's going to leave them and they have to carry on in his absence. That doesn't seem to be a good deal. So look at John 16 and look at verse number five. He says, now I go my way to him that sent me. None of you asketh me whither goest thou, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Sorrow hath filled your heart. Watch this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Here's what he just said. It is better for you that I go away than that I stay. Because if I stay, I'll not be able to send you the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit would descend upon them and he would fill them and he would be their presence instead of Christ in the flesh. And he says, you won't have me in body, but you will have me in spirit. And that is actually better. That's what he says. It's expedient for you. It's near. This is what you need. He's going to indwell you. He's going to be with you. He's going to be your comforter. He's going to be your guide. He's going to lead you in truth. And what an amazing thought that the God who saves us inhabits us. That's an amazing thought. Now, now come back to my text. Come back to my text. Look at it. Out of his belly, verse 38, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Out of your innermost beings, there is going to be a fountain of life and joy and peace and gladness and empowerment. And it's going to flow to other people. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to enable you. It's not just to save you and to keep you out of hell. But I'm going to fill you with myself. And it's going to flow out of you. And it's going to create a passion for God and a hunger for truth and a zeal for the glory of God. There's going to be a desire in you to be used to God. There's going to be a desire in you to have a holy habit. If most Christians have a drip, drip, drip experience, but he said the Holy Spirit is going to be like a river, a river flowing out of you. So does that describe you? Do you experience the river flowing out of your innermost beings? You know, If that doesn't describe you, there's a problem. Would you agree with me? There's a problem somewhere. I think I could identify one of three problems. Number one, if that doesn't describe you, then you're not saved. You've never come to Christ. Maybe because you've never been thirsty. But you don't have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Grace and power and ministry, it doesn't flow out of you because you don't have the fountainhead inside of you. You, you hear, you're hearing my voice, you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I'm not being unkind, but you understand academically what I'm saying, but as far as experiencing the life of the Holy Spirit, totally foreign to you. So it could be that you're not saved. Or it could be that you're not serious. You walk after the flesh, not after the spirit. Your whole life is ruled by the lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh, pride of life. That's your whole existence. Or it could be that you're not satisfied. You have that well inside of you, but you keep going to the wells of the world. And it's damning up your soul is what it's doing. So many Christians are rarely. I wish I had Eric here this morning. I wish I had Jason Kendrick here. I wish I had, I wish I had some Bible believers here this morning. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so, so many Christians, so many Christians are so rarely they know Christ, but they love the world. 
Come on. We're addicted to entertainment. We're addicted to materialism. We're addicted, addicted to fashion. We're addicted to sin, indifferent toward Christ, and, 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 and frustrated with life, and no desire for the Word of God, and, and no prayer life. You can be saved and not be spiritual. You can have the Holy Spirit inside of you and deny his power and deny his feeling and deny his leading and you can have the Spirit of Christ inside of you and not have the fruits of the Spirit growing inside of you. Does that describe you? And if you don't have that river flowing inside of you, you rob in your life of joy and power and the glory of God. And it's an amazing thought that Jesus didn't come just to keep you out of hell. But he saves you to give you life abundant. I'm not talking about a life of ease and wealth and no pain and no sickness and pleasure and all of the things that the world, that the life lusts for. But I'm talking about something that's much deeper, something that is more satisfying. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, more abundantly. Can I tell you that I love life and I love life in the Lord? I love serving Jesus and I love walking in his word. And I'm telling you that I have drank from the deep wells of salvation. I know what it is to have the well bubbling up inside of me. He gave me a drink and then he got, I came for water and he gave me the well. Put the well inside of me. And you're looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm looking at you wondering, why don't you experience the well inside of you? You know, when I'm studying, I, 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 I sometimes run off on rabbit trails when I'm studying. But I usually have the grace not to chase them in the pulpit. I just chase them for my own personal benefit and I leave them out of the transcript. But I was thinking about rivers, rivers of living. Do y'all have a minute? Rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. Not, not, not a literal river, but something flowing through you that's like a river. And when the Bible uses imagery, it does so for a purpose. It says something for a purpose. There's nothing as peaceful as a gentle river. There's nothing as powerful as a rushing river. Peaceful. Don't get ahead of me. Peaceful but powerful. I thought about that river. I thought about the source of the river. Every river starts high and flows low. It, does. it starts way up in there in the mountain or a rock somewhere, and it flows to the lowest point that it can get. I think about what Jesus said in Luke 24. He said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, until ye be endued with power from on high. Come on high. Every river, it starts high. I'm going to enjoy it myself, all right? It starts high and it flows low. I have the Holy Ghost because it started in a high place and it flowed to a low place. The blood that Jesus shed opened up a fountain that flowed from the Calvary to the lowest center course of the river. But then I thought about, that, that's the source of the river. I thought about the course of the river. That river that starts high and flows low normally stays within the banks of the river. It doesn't just flow indiscriminately. 
river just it, it has these banks and it flows along the course of the banks of the river. Now it can swell and get out of its banks. It can. But it loses its power when it does. It loses its force when it does. It can create damage and swamp cities and, and it, but the power is when it stays within the course determined by the banks. Can I tell you that the Holy Spirit is not going to just run nilly-willy in your life? It's not. The Holy Spirit will flow in your life as determined by the banks of the Word of God. The course that is the course that is determined for your life stays within the banks of the scripture. It cuts a channel according to the word of God. You may run off into strange doctrine or join some strange movement, but you won't do it according to the Bible. You can claim God sent you, but you'd be lying. It stays in the banks of the river. Did you know the Bible is the only book that when you open it, the author is still there? It is. It is. When you open it, the author is still there. And when you open the Bible, you open the mind of God, and the wind of the Spirit begins to blow upon the pages. The source of the river, it always starts high, it flows low. The course of the river, it's in the banks, the channel cut by the Word of God. I thought about the force of the river. There's no power in a swamp, there's no power in a pond. There is power in a river. A river washes debris away. A river carries um, barges downstream and delivers goods to other places. A river can even provide the power for an electrical power plant and provide power to cities and other people. A river is very forceful. The most fertile grounds are river grounds that are next to the river. And when the Holy Spirit is flowing in your life, what it does is it gives power to your life. Can I tell you what the river will do? It'll sweep some debris away. Oh, it will. It'll get rid of a lot of junk in your life. You know, I tell you, when the river's flowing, it makes your life a channel of blessing to other people. There'll be power in your life, and then it helps somebody else to get, have some power and to have some life. I tell you, when, you're, when the river's flowing, it's an amazing thing to me that when the Spirit of God is ruling in a man's life and that river's flowing, there is grace to forgive somebody. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory. People that have hurting hearts still have satisfied hearts. Ah, the force of the river. The Savior's invitation, the Spirit's operation. But then I want you to notice quickly the sinner's deliberation. Come back to my scene. Can you see them? Thousands of people. Throngs of people. Waving their branches, pouring the water out. Marching around the altar, singing Psalm 113. I mean, it's a jubilant time. And Jesus cries with the loudest voice that he can. And all eyes turn toward him. And everybody looking at him has an opinion. They think something about him. If you'll notice in verse 40, and I, I, I mentioned it to you quickly. But in John 7, notice in verse 40, there are those who are convinced. Verse 40, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of, this, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, shall Christ come out? 
of Galilee. They knew that a forerunner would come before the Messiah. So some said he must be that forerunner, that prophet, that he must be that. Others said, no, he's the Messiah himself. There are some who are convinced that he must be the promised Messiah. Now, we're not told that they came to Jesus, confessed him as Lord, and that they got saved. But they sure are close. They're convinced. And then there are some that are confused. Look again at verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh out of the seed of David, out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? All the signs point to him to being the Messiah. The little problem is he came from Galilee. How could he come from Galilee? Our Bible says, Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, five minutes research would have told them he was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. The temple records, I mean, right there, you go check them. If you was big on genealogy, you can go check the genealogy. But religion and tradition can be so blinding that they can't see what's staring them in the face. They're confused. There's some who are contemptuous, verse 42. Hath not the scripture said, Christ cometh out of the seed of David, out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. Then came, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees. They said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them, The Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? The Pharisees, this sees, the Pharisees see this as their moment. They send out the temple police, let's arrest him. Temple police come back heavy, empty handed, What are you doing? And here's what they said Never man spake like this man. Now that's a message right there. Never man spake like this man. And the Pharisees are closed-minded is what they are. And they're very angry. They're scornful. They're, they're contemptuous. They're the only ones worthy of entering into the kingdom. The most devout men are the, loose, are the least spiritual. And they are contemptuous. And I wish I could preach this, and I don't have time, but there are some who are considerate. Would you look at verse number 50? Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? The answer said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look for out of Galilee. Arisest no problem. You remember Nicodemus, don't you? John 3, the Pharisee that came to Jesus by night with questions, that long conversation with Jesus in the name. And Nicodemus never got the words of Jesus out of his heart. He's pondered them. And I believe conviction is setting in. He doesn't get saved here. But wait till we get to John 19. He'll take his stand. He'll take his stand with Christ. He'll become a believer, but we see him at least considering Christ. He doesn't confess Christ, but do you see the Spirit of God working in his heart here? That's his reaction. And I ask you this morning as piano player comes, have you ever come to Christ in your thirst and found in him a satisfying drink for your soul? If you've never come to Christ, here's what I pray. I pray the Holy Spirit awaken your heart to your need of a Savior. Because you're not coming until you get thirsty. Only when you are sick of your sin will you come to Jesus. We can sing just as I am for another hour, and you're not coming.
But if you ever get sick of your sin, if you ever see the devastation that sin is working in your life, if you ever come to the realization that this sin is not worth the trouble that it is causing me, if you ever get sick of it, then come to Jesus and he'll satisfy and I ask you for those who are saved, is that Holy Spirit flowing like a river in your life? Maybe you've been saved, but you don't experience the reality of the Holy Spirit miserably saved. Saved, but not yielded to the Holy Spirit. You can't have more of the Spirit, but the Spirit can have more of you. Surrender to His urging. Yield to his leading. Let him fill you with peace and power and satisfaction. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you this morning, you hear the words. You're so in love with your world and your toys and entertainment and whatever it might be that you can't even feel the Holy Spirit in your life. But I want you to know that there is someone inside of you that can do so much more for you than the fashions of this world. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Hannah, play for me this morning. So heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If the Lord's speaking to your heart, you ought to step out even now and come and not wait. If you're here this morning, you've never been saved. I've preached the gospel as clearly as I can to you. I presented Christ to you as the answer to your soul's satisfaction. But you'll have to get thirsty for him. If you ever do get thirsty of your sin, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Is that river flowing in your life? I'm telling you, it gives you not just life, but life more abundantly. Like a river flowing, flowing. 